I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And so I just encourage you as you go to Scripture to pray things like that, asking God for a heart's desire to know His Word, going into asking God for grace that we might long to obey it, asking God to give us understanding of the text and these type things. We also talked about the role of community. And when we approach the Bible, we need to do so not just us alone. We need to have community to help speak truth into our life and to help us understand it. And we also talked about cultural differences and the cultural biases that can cloud our understanding of the Scripture. So that brings us to tonight, to our new topic, week four, the genres of Scripture. We're going to talk about why bother looking at genres. I'll talk about the one that's so enthralling, historical narrative, right? I realize Sunday morning I tell people, we're going to talk about historical narrative Wednesday night. It's like, I probably scared everyone away with that one, you know. Most people are like, history, oh no. But what, what is the big deal about these? So turn the page to page two of your handout for tonight. And let's talk about genres in general and genres of the Bible. What is the big deal about genres? First of all, what is a genre? I gave you the, the definition from dictionary.com. It's a class or category of artistic endeavor having a particular form, content, technique, or the like. And this is important. So when we look at the genres of Scripture, we're talking about passages in the Bible that have a particular type of form, a particular type of content that are written in the same way. You can also define genre as or relating to a distinctive literary type. When you approach the Bible, there's not just one literary type in the Bible. There's a lot of literary types in the Bible. There's a lot of genres. And these are the genres we need to approach in different ways. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. The reality is, friends, every day we're identifying genres. Most of us don't intentionally think about that. Most of us are not being like, I wonder what the genre of that is. We're not consciously doing it. We're kind of just, just naturally doing it. So, for example, if you checked your mail today when you got home from work, if you get your mail and you see a, a thing that says Montgomery Waterworks, urgent, final notice, water cutoff, you have just interpreted that as a genre. You're not like, ah, spam, and toss in a trash can. There's a genre attached to it. You know, this is Bill. This is carries the weight of the government behind it. I better pay attention. But in the same mailbox, you may get a piece of mail, and it has, you're the winner. Come down to whatever Chevrolet dealership. You've won today. Scratch off this tab. If you have the number four, you've won. I got the number four. Oh, my goodness. I'm the big winner. Let me go see what happened. Well, we don't take that down to the bank right away. Chunk that. It's spam. You know, what, there's just marketing. Why? Because you've identified the genre without even thinking about it, just by looking at what came in the mail. We do this with our email. I hope when you see an email from me this week, greetings, Gateway family, and then here's what's happening this week. You're not like, oh, spam, Mark spam. You know, I hope you're paying attention. Like, oh, so the pastor's sending us something. I want to see what he had to say. But then when you also get in your same inbox that day, a thing like, hi, I know you're trustworthy. I have $10 million from an overseas account I need to transfer to you. Could you please send me your bank account number? You know that that's completely false. And so you just ignore it because you've identified genres even of your emails when those come through. How about movies? No one goes and, like, I love Star Wars and Star Wars movies. You don't go and see it, this, the text on the screen in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and be like, oh, good, I'm learning some science tonight. You know, the, without even thinking about it, we've identified genre science fiction. This is kind of fairy tale like But you go watch something like Lincoln or Gettysburg, and all of a sudden you're, you're interpreting in a whole different way because you realize there's history behind what you're seeing. How about books? You identify genres as well. If your book begins, it was June 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy. You immediately know you're looking at history. But when I pick up one of my kids' books and says, you know, once upon a time, just those four little words that in my mind identified a genre for me, and now I'm going to approach that book of on this date in, Ger- or in Normandy versus different than once upon a time because those few words are going to tell me the genre in which I'm interpreting things by. So we're always looking for genres that we don't think about it, and we understand them differently. Again, when I pick up Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to read my, to my kids, 
we're going to understand that differently than a history book I pick up. When I watch Star Wars, I'm going to understand that different than in watching Lincoln, these, because there's genres attached to these things. And the same thing is true of the Bible. The Bible does not have one genre. It has many genres to it. And they're on your list, your handout is a few of them. Historical narrative, poetry, proverbs, prophecy, parables, and epistles. And what's important to realize is each one of these genres in the Bible has its own distinct rules for interpretation. Now, rules may not necessarily be the right word. Perhaps a better word would be principles of communication. But a lot of times theologians like to think of it in terms of rules for how you interpret each genre. But think of it in terms of principles might be a better word. Principles for how we communicate. When the authors of the Bible wrote things down, they knew the genre they were writing. And they expected their readers to understand that genre as well. So why take time to figure it out? What is the importance as we try to understand the Bible of discerning the genre? Well, if you remember... Our goal is to find the authorial intent. We want to know what the text means. We don't apply meaning. We want to understand the meaning that comes from the text. It comes from the intent of the authors. Therefore, we need to understand what genre they were using. Think of it in terms of sports. Sports have genres. They have rules that go with it. The rules of football are very different than the rules of soccer. Though they both are technically football, the rules are very different. So like my kids just started soccer with Coach Bruno yesterday. And it was fun to watch the kids running around, and they would kick a ball, and they would miss a shot, so they just go try to pick up the ball. And, they, and Aaron and the other coach were like, no, no, you can't hold the ball. Why? Because there's rules that apply to the game of soccer that are different than other sports. And if you try to hold the ball, well, you're not going to get very far in soccer. You know, it's, that's not how the game works. Same thing's true with Scripture. If you try to apply the principles of interpretation of a parable to a historical narrative, you're going to end up in a really messed up place, or you're going to end up really confused in the process. It's important for us to understand the correct genres. Which leads to the question, how do we know the genre of a particular passage? Well, how do we know? Well, let me give you kind of four ways to know the genre of a particular passage. Number one, just look for clues in the text. Like you would do anything, look, look for clues in the text. Tonight we're talking about historical narratives. And when you're seeing, and Jesus said to them, and they said to Jesus, and you start seeing this back and forth, well, that's going to be a historical narrative. Or if Jesus is going to say, you know, I want to tell you something, and he starts to, to proceed with, once there was a man going down to Jerusalem. You know, oh, this is beginning a story. This is a parable. They're going to look for clues in the text. And we'll talk about those each week. So don't worry about trying to get all those down right now. We'll talk each week about what the clues are to help you find what that genre is. So again, tonight we're starting with historical narrative. You're looking for quotation, action. Immediately he went to. Then he went to. He did this. These, you know, so we're looking for action type things and quotes. That's historical narrative. So number two, we pray and ask for help. We talked about that and the importance of approaching Scripture. We approach it with prayer. So as we go to Scripture, say, Lord, show me. Help me understand the text. As we pray Psalm 119 over the text and asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text to us, this thing we can ask for, Lord, help me even understand the genre of what I'm reading here so I can interpret it correctly. So one, you look for clues. Two, you pray and ask for help. Three, you just keep working on it. It's a discipline. It's not, it's not, there's no, like, you don't have to have a seminary degree to figure out genres. It's just discipline yourself to study the Scriptures and read and look. And then number four, if you're not sure, look at your study Bible. Look at a commentary. And one of our final weeks of the series, I'll talk about good resources to use on that. Um, but get you a good study Bible. The one I recommend and use the most is the ESV study Bible. But there's other good ones out there. And it'll often tell you, in this parable Jesus said, or you know, in this narrative account, or you know, you'll find those often in there. If you're confused, they can be a good clue to help you understand them. So that's kind of the background of why we even bother approaching the genres of Scripture. That leads us to tonight's topic is historical narrative. Historical narrative. This is important for understanding the Bible. 40% of the Old Testament is historical narrative. And 60% of the New Testament is as well. 
So 40% of the Old Testament, 60% of the New Testament is historical narrative. And so that's a lot of the Bible to make sure we're interpreting, we're understanding correctly. Historical narrative is where most people first encounter the Bible. If you ask someone, tell me your favorite thing in the Bible, a lot of times they'll go back to a story. So when you think of the stories of the Bible, the story of the, of the Passover and the Exodus, that's historical narrative. If you want to think of the story of Joseph being sold into slavery and how God used that to deliver the people from the famine, that's historical narrative. The birth of Christ, the Christmas story that we looked at just about what, two months ago through the Advent season, that's historical narrative. You look at the story of David and Bathsheba. You look in the New Testament, the story of Jesus being the 5,000. All that's historical narrative. Even going to Acts in the early church and the growth of the early church, that's all historical narrative. And so when you come to the scriptures, you're going to find a lot of this genre, this historical narrative, and particularly in like Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are your Old Testament books that have a lot of this. And you probably could guess pretty quickly, if you go to the New Testament, the historical narrative is mostly in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in Acts. Those first five books in the New Testament is where you see most of the, the genre of historical narrative. So what is historical narrative? There's a definition for you on your handout. It is recounting of factual events in story format. It's just the recounting of factual events in story format. And again, remember, we believe that the Bible is historically accurate. The Bible, everything it tells us is true because God is true. And so we believe it. And so we're, lo- we're looking at things that actually happened here. These are not stories of just nice fairy tales to teach truth. These are historical events that happened in time here in history. And we're studying about those. And if we want to understand historical narrative, we have to ask the foundational questions there on your handout. Why are these stories included in the Bible? What is the point of this genre? Why are those stories even there? Because they're not just facts. They're not just what took place in the past. Yes, the Bible tells us history, but the point of the Bible is not primarily to be a history book in the sense of like you would have in school. So why do we have historical narrative there? It is to point us to help us understand how these stories relate to faith. All these stories are there to help us relate to biblical faith. The emphasis is less on the event and more on what the event teaches us. It's less on the event itself and more on the meaning of the event. There's a reason because there's so much more that could have been included in Israel's history, so much more that could have been included in the life of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to include these particular things. Why? For our faith, that we might learn more about who God is. I've given you several scriptures there to remind us of this. This is New Testament, particularly looking back on Old Testament, but it applies to all historical narrative. Look at Romans 15:4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so again, the point of recounting these stories is not just for the sake of us having factual information. It is for our faith. It is to give us endurance, to help us know who God is, to give us hope in our journey. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. This is a fascinating one. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened, these things that were historically, historical narratives recorded for us, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so these things were written for our instruction, for our good. 
Well, that may raise a question in your thinking, because remember I told you a few weeks back that the point of the story is not us. And so is there a discrepancy here? Well, no, there's a difference between finding instruction and moralizing a story. I warned you about the danger of trying to, to take moral, like moralizing these stories. There's a difference in reading what's happened in a historical narrative and being like, there's a lesson for me about the nature of God and a lesson for me how I'm to live. That's very different, different than the moralizing, which takes, adds a meaning that wasn't there. So, for example, if, let's say, and we're not doing this, but let's say we wanted to build a new sanctuary. You know, if we wanted to do that, I'm not going to get up here and preach on David building the temple and being, see, God wants us to have a new building too. You know, like that's, that's moralizing. That's different than instruction. I use this illustration of David and Goliath a good bit also because the point of David and Goliath has nothing to do with us conquering the giants in our life. It's all about God's glory and God's fame. That's moralizing, but us taking a text and going, I can learn from this text and I can learn from the example here about what God expects of us and I can learn from this text how I'm to relate to other people. That's different. That's application of a text. That's different than the moralizing. So I just wanted to clarify that for us. Turn the page. One more verse to remind us about the nature of why we need to study historical narrative. Second Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So why do we need to study historical narrative? Why is it given to us? It's given to us, like it says here, Paul told Timothy, to make us wise for salvation. We need it here to equip us for every good work. And so we don't just check out on historical narratives in the Old Testament or the New Testament. God has given them to us for our instruction. God has given them to us to make us wise for salvation. God has given it to us so that we might be equipped for every good work. These historical narratives are a grace gift from God. So next time you get stuck in genealogies, as part of historical narrative, there's a reason God has given them to us on this. And so thus we need to try to understand the meaning. But the challenge for us in this genre of scripture, and so in your hand out there, the meaning is implicit, not explicit. You know, when you get into a lot of the epistles, and we'll get into that genre in a few weeks, the meaning is kind of pretty clearly stated for you. But in historical narrative, the meaning is very much implicit. It's implied by the text. You kind of have to dig to find out what the meaning was. Now, there are exceptions. Working through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. Talked about John 20, 31, where John says, These things are written to you so that you may believe. You know, there are places where we're told, but for the most part, historical narrative is not that direct in telling us what the meaning is. We have to discover it. So the question is, how do we find out what that meaning is? How do we understand historical narrative? And I've got four things for us to think about for how to understand historical narrative. Number one, this ties into what we talked about a few weeks ago. Number one, we ask questions of the text. We ask questions to understand the text. When you come to historical narrative, we have to understand what the story is telling us if we want to get it right. So you ask questions like, what is the scene? What is happening here? What's the background? What's going on? What is the plot? And by plot, I'm not implying that it's a fairy tale. Like, what happened? Who said what to whom? What was the action? What was the sequence of events is what I'm getting at on that so we understand the progression of the thought. Who are the people in this story? How are these people following God? How are they sinning? And that important question that I talked about a few weeks ago as well, is this passage descriptive or is this passage prescriptive? Because that makes a big difference. Is this prescriptive, God prescribing, God telling me what I should do, or just describing what has happened? So, for instance, if you go into Judges chapter 6, you go into Judges chapter 6, you have this, this text we're familiar with of Gideon and putting out fleeces. 
is Gideon putting out fleeces, going, okay, Lord, I'm not sure I can believe. Let it be wet on this side. And it's, okay, Lord, just one more time. You know, let it be dry, you know, and this back and forth. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive. It's telling us what happened. That is not for us to say, listen, if you're having trouble believing God, go test God tonight. You know, that's not what it's telling us to do. The scripture is very clear about not putting the Lord to the test. And so that's a descriptive passage for us of what happened. So you ask questions about the text like that. As you ask questions, I put two in bold here on your handout. There's two really, really important questions to ask when you come to historical accounts in the Bible, to the historical narratives. Number one, what do we learn about the nature of God? If there's one question you ask when you look at a text, whether it's David and Bathsheba or the Passover or descriptions of the early church, the first and foremost question needs to be not, you know, how do I live this out in my life? The first question is, what do we learn about God here? Because the, book, the Bible is about more about God than it's about us. It's about his story and God's glory. God is always the main character. God is always the hero. And so that is the most important question to ask is, what do I learn about the nature of God here? But as we learn about the nature of God, God acts the way he does because of his nature. We're going to get into that next in the months to come under the attributes of God's study. But that leads to the question, the next question, what is the place of the story in redemptive history? Because if we're trying to figure out who, where's God in the story and what he's he doing, what do we learn about him? I need to learn about how he's acting, what he's doing, and therefore how does this story fit into God's redemptive plans? Remember, I guess it was two weeks ago, we kind of did a little exercise through Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. And we kind of looked at that text and how we misapply that to being about me. What is the point of Jeremiah 29? It's in, his, in the redemptive story. It's to God's people, the Israelites at the time, and God's plan that though they were in captivity, he had a plan to restore them. So we have to understand where that text fits into redemptive history so we do not misapply that. So ask questions of the text. Number two, look carefully at the context. And so I can't emphasize this enough. Context, context, context. Historical narrative, we've got to understand the context of the text, the author of the Bible, the people who wrote the Bible, the Holy Spirit inspired, intended for us to read the whole thing, not excerpts. And it, become, it can become really easy. And I mean, we do this a lot of times devotion. We'll take a verse out and then build a whole devotional around it. Or pull a little paragraph out and apply it to a story for our life. And we always need to be reading scripture. It's never bad to read scripture, even in isolated sections. But when the Bible was written, it wasn't like, oh, here's a standalone thing. I hope they read that by itself. The authors of the scripture intended for you to read the whole flow of thought. There's a reason they wrote what they did. I mean, so, for example, the Gospels. A lot of times we'll teach just one part of the Gospel by itself, but the Gospels had a very specific purpose. Mark 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So everything that follows in Mark, the passages that Mark chooses to include and not include are all around this, trying to help us see that Jesus is the Son of God. We go over to Luke, the beginning of Luke. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So when we look at Luke, we don't pull one thing out. The whole point of Luke is to help us have certainty of the things that we were taught. And we've already seen that in the Gospel of John in our study on Sunday mornings. These were written that we might believe. And so these individual passages all accomplish that purpose. So what is the purpose of this book of the Bible? We need to be asking that question. And Drew did a great job of that preaching Sunday morning on the passage of first Jesus' first miracle in John 2, turning water to wine. The point of that passage has very little to do with wine. 
That's not the point of it. The point of it is Jesus' power. The point of it is who Jesus is, that we might believe in him. And so we need to understand the context of what we're reading. And friends, there's a, there's a grave danger in this, in taking things out of context. So a lot of you know I did my dissertation on how our view of providence impacts our prayer life. And I was focusing on a guy named Ian e. Bounds. If some of you have read some of Ian e. Bounds' writings. Well, one of the texts that Ian e. Bounds used in his prayer book was Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. Because in Isaiah 45:11, there's a verse where God says, Will you command me concerning the works of my hands? Well, in the older King James Version, it says, Command ye me the works of my hands. And Bounds builds this entire theology of prayer off that one verse, saying, look, God is in heaven waiting on your orders to tell him how to run his universe. The God is in heaven waiting for you to tell him what needs to be done. Look, God even says, command ye me. Do you realize the power God's giving you? And so Bounds builds this whole very compelling sounding thing. Only problem is that's not what that verse is about. You can pull that one verse out and say, command ye me, and make it sound all about prayer. And a lot of pastors have preached that verse in prayer. That has absolutely nothing to do with prayer. Isaiah 44 and 45 is God sovereignly choosing to raise up Cyrus, a pagan king, to deliver God's people from their captivity. God's people don't like this, and they're complaining and murmuring at the thought of God using a pagan, not one of his own people, to deliver them. And so God basically comes back to me and says, who are you to argue back to me? Will you command me the works of my hands? And so it's not a call to prayer. It's a rebuke of God's people of telling God what he should do. The very thing that Drew was getting to in John 2 Sunday morning in, our, in the sermon for us, that in John 2, we, in this whole thing of seeing Jesus' power, it reminds us that we go to Jesus not with a solution. We just bring to Jesus the problem and trust that he's big enough to know how to fix it. And so that's a reminder to us in this. And so you can take this one verse out of Isaiah 45, 11 and be like, look, God's telling you he wants you to command him what to do. Well, no, it's a rebuke, not a thing, but you, not a prayer command. The other one that I love, particularly working in mission stuff over the years, is from the book of Habakkuk, the one everyone quickly turns to for their quiet times, right? I don't know if you've ever heard this one used. Let me read this verse and tell me if you've ever heard this used in a missions conference or missions video. Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. We never heard that term in terms of missions. I just did a quick Google search today and just typed missions, and I took, took one phrase out. There are 68,000 web pages that relate missions in this verse together. I mean, it's everywhere. I've seen missions videos. I've seen stuff from the International Mission Board where they use this. Well, that sounds really great. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Well, out of context, it sounds like a missions thing that has absolutely nothing to do with global missions. What's this all about? Well, here's where you're supposed to wonder. God says, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Wait, this is a pagan people. Wait, I'm supposed to wonder about what? That bitter, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. The wonder and be amazed is God says, you've rejected me, my people, you've rejected me. I'm bringing destruction on you. The world is going to wonder and be amazed at how I've turned against you because you've turned against me. And so back at one, we can pull it out of context and make it sound really, really good for missions and compel people. Go to the nations. Look, wonder. God's doing wondrous things. The wondrous thing of Habakkuk 1 is he's about to wipe out his people for their rebellion. I'm not sure that's a promise that these 68,000 web, web pages want to be claiming that day, especially if they want to name it and claim it. They're claiming this verse for themselves. They're claiming destruction for their, their lack of faith. And so we must always understand the context. So context, context, context. If we want to understand, we must understand the part. To understand, sorry, to understand the part, we must understand the whole. So we need to see what the author was trying to do. 
Number three on your handout, as far as how do we approach historical narratives, we ask questions. Number one, two, we look at the context. Number three, we look for explanations from the author. We look for explanations because in the midst of most historical narrative, the authors of the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit have given us insights into what they are trying to say. You'll find these, these throughout it. For example, you'll find introductions to books. We already looked at those from the gospel, but like Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So what's, jo- what's the book of Joshua going to be about? Well, he just tells us. It's about going into the land that he's giving to them. So there's an introduction that tells us what's going on here. The same thing in the book of Judges. You get into Judges chapter 21, at the very end of the book of Judges. There's a summary statement to help us get the meaning of what the historical narrative of Judges was about. Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so you have this, this interjection here, this summary of what this, this historical narrative was helping us see, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You'll find these summary statements in other places as well. You'll find little interjections. So in Mark 7, 19, you'll find Mark just interjecting. Thus Jesus declared all foods to be clean. And it kind of pauses from what Jesus is saying in a stick then to help us understand the meaning of what's going on there. You can see in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, through the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, because there, the person who wrote 1 Kings talks about how many years it took to build a temple. The seven years there. And then the very next verse, and then Solomon spent 13 years building his house. It was an, that was an important interjection there to help us understand that Solomon's divided heart. He was much more interested in his own house and put more effort in his own house than the Lord's house. And so there's an authorial interjection there on that. And then you have just beautiful summary statements. If you go to the book of Acts, you know, one of my favorites is in Acts chapter 2, because in the middle of this, Luke just kind of pauses from all the action of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and all of a sudden he just pauses in the middle of it. It's almost like a parenthesis in the text, and he goes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And he goes on for a few more verses. He's given us this this explanation of what's happening so we understand the whole point of the book, the spread of the church. But one other thing we need to do as well as we look at text is is number four, look for repetition. Look for repetition as you go into it. Now, this will not always be the case. You're not going to find this in in every historical narrative. But, for instance, the book of Judges. There is historical narrative in there. And the book of Judges seems pretty repetitive after a while. When you do evil, the Lord will, will punish the people. When they repent, he rescues them. They do evil, he punishes, they repent, he brings good. Back and forth, back and forth. It's repetition for a point. It's a repetition to help us understand what's going on. That sin leads to judgments and repentance leads to salvation. But not only is the idea repeated, there's a a verse that's basically repeated twice. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't it sound familiar? Because you go to the very end of Judges, to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isaiah actually repeats this two different times. Why? Because it was so important for the message of what the book was all about. And so those are the four things I would encourage you to do as you approach the text. Well, what I want us to do in just a minute is I want us to divide up into groups, and we're going to practice interpreting, understanding historical narrative. And so what I've done on the very back of your your handout, I've given you two texts to help guide your discussion. One from the Old Testament 
and one from the New Testament. We're going to start with Genesis 39 with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph and Potiphar's wife is a story that we frequently will use with like college students or teenagers telling them about fleeing sexual immorality. And that is an application of the text. That's not the main point of the text. That's not the main meaning of the text. I want you and your small groups to wrestle with Genesis 39. So I've given you some questions to kind of help you begin to use this approach to it. So ask questions about the text. And your groups talk about what is the scene, what's the plot, who are the people, are they following God, are they sinning? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? What do we learn about God here? And then the last question I want us to answer through through question two, and that's looking at context. Because this text of Genesis 39 of Joseph and Potiphar's wife is in the midst of a section of Genesis that begins in Genesis 12 and goes all the way to Genesis, sorry, I put 20, but all the way to the end of the book there. And so I want you to, to ask yourself, what are the main ideas of the book of Genesis? How does this, you know, why is this included in Genesis? What is the point of this story, this historical account? Well, how does that fit into the main themes of Genesis itself? But then here's one, don't miss this question. Why is the story of Abraham and his descendants? Because Joseph is a descendant of Abraham. Why is the story of Abraham and his descendants, including Joseph, so important in redemptive history? Because that begins to inform why this text is important. Look for explanations. And so I've given you two particular verses to look for where the author gives some explanations of what's happening. And look for, for repetition. Because there's a phrase that's repeated four different times, an idea that's repeated four different times in Genesis 39. And so what is that that's repeated? And then pull all that together in your groups and decide what is the main point of this passage. Is the, yes, fleeing sexual immorality is an application of the text, but what is the main meaning of the text based on these ideas? Then I want you to go to the New Testament to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is where you have the demoniac man. He's possessed with a legion, the many demons. And Jesus delivers the, the man from the demon possession. So, again, I gave you a few less questions with this one, but use the same approach. Ask questions of the text. Same type of questions above, but make sure you include the question, what do we learn about Jesus here? Then look for context. Why did Mark write the book? Mark was very intentional in his, in his kind of fast-paced book of why he put the accounts and he did. So why did Mark write the book? How is the surrounding context in the verses just before and just after the deliverance? What's happening? How does Mark chapter 4, verse 41, read that one, the last before it. How does that help us understand his intent in this account? So why then do you think Mark included this account in his gospel? Are there any explanations, any repetition here? And then in light of all that coming together, what is the main point of the passage? And so that would be a fun way to try to apply what we are talking about tonight. So if you'll do that, go ahead and um, divide up into groups. Um, probably just about six, seven, eight people into groups and just kind of circle up wherever you want to be and start working through those texts. If you have any questions, I'll kind of float around and be glad to jump in if your group has any questions. Then we'll come back together, talk about a few things, and wrap it up this evening. Okay, everybody, our time is almost up for the night. I know you may not have all had time to, to finish up, so but... Hopefully you had a chance to hear Dave getting his last word in back there on his group there. So, so just real, real, real quickly, at least for Genesis 39, I'd love to hear from, from one or two groups. What did you come up with after you kind of wrestled through these questions and context, explanation, repetition? What was the main point of the Genesis 39 accounts? What, is the, what was the main point of Genesis 39 after your discussion? What did y'all come up with? Was that... God has a plan, yeah. What else did y'all come up with in your groups? There's some good stuff I know I heard over here. They put Seth on the spot. God is with Joseph. Did y'all see that? That phrase repeated over and over in there. 
God is with Joseph, God is with Joseph, God is with him, God is with him. You see that, that phrase? That's kind of where repetition helps the historical narrative is you see a phrase repeated four times there in Genesis 39 and verses 2, 3, 21, and 23. And so, so yeah, God is with us. God has a plan. And so, yeah, we can make application of that text that, yes, we flee from sexual morality, but even bigger application of this text is God has a plan. God is with us, but it's not just about us. Joseph was part of the redemptive line, the messianic line here. And we start looking at what's going on and why is this story included. There's a, there's a bigger picture here than just Joseph. God has to spare Joseph to spare the, the Israelites through the famine and the Egyptians at the same time. But also so the messianic line continues so that we can be spared today from our sins. And so that's part of where when we look at historical narrative, again, the danger of just moralizing it to well, just a lesson for us. There's a lot bigger things that here at stake of that God is with him. And so I hope you see that as you kind of work through, work through that. I heard some fun discussion going on. And then from the Mark account, I know a lot of your groups haven't had a chance to finish this one yet, but like I've heard different things from this. In fact, years ago, I was at a Lifeway store and picked up a book on spiritual warfare, and it referenced Mark 5 and some other texts and had a chapter on how to interview demons. That's not the point of Mark 5. Yeah. And I was going, they sell this in Lifeway? You know, yeah, yeah. But that's not the point of it. Did anyone get a chance to get through to what the point of Mark 5 was? Any of the groups get to that point yet? I think y'all are all just, just started. Jesus has power and authority, yeah. Jesus is sovereign over all. Yeah, you look at the context and Jesus can, can calm storms. Yeah, and the earth and the spirit world. Jesus has power over the earth. He has power over the spirit world. Jesus has power over all. And if you look at Mark, this is the gospel of Jesus, son of God. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the son of God. He's doing things that no one else can do, that he is God. Who of us can calm the storm on the sea? Who of us can heal a, a sick girl? Who of us can deliver demons like, like Jesus did here? And so all these are things that Mark has intentionally included in Jesus' life to show us that Jesus is God, that he is the son of God, that he is all-powerful. And, and that's the main point of that text, is showing us that Jesus' absolute sovereign reign and power over all things. So I hope that's a helpful exercise for you. Again, historical narrative can be one we kind of like, oh, you know, how do we get through that? I hope this will help give you some fresh eyes as you look at historical narrative to realize there's a big storyline in all of this, and it's all about God and God's glory and what God is up to. Next week, we're picking up with the Psalms. How do we understand poetry in Scripture? If you're like me, I, I love reading the Psalms. I, I love just because there's such a, a plethora of emotions in the Psalms. That if you're having a good day or a bad day, you can find a Psalm that you identify with. In that. So how do we interpret the poetry of Scripture? How do we particularly interpret the Psalms? That's next week. And then the week after, the last week of this month, we're going to look at understanding Proverbs. Because so often we can take Proverbs and, and we misapply them because the, the principles for application of Proverbs are very different than promises. And we're going to talk about what that looks like um, on, on two weeks from tonight. So I hope you'll be back for all of those. Just one last thing, just to let you know, this Sunday we are praying and hoping that Carmen is going to be able to, to preach Sunday morning. Um, CJ, I don't know if do you want to give just, I think everyone's seen on Facebook, do you want to give just a 30-second update so everyone knows if they haven't seen the update today from the PET scan?
So keep praying for Carmen. Yeah, we, we, we're thankful for that. And pray that he'll be able to preach Sunday. The Lord has just filled his heart with the truth he wants to impart to us, and I'm excited about that. So we're going to give Carmen Sunday morning and pray that he'll have the strength to do that. Last thing I want to mention is a matter of prayer request, just in case you haven't heard. Laurie Smart's mother went to see Jesus today. And so if you have not heard that yet, I don't have any other details yet, but I want you to be aware of that. So just, just realize that, um, that that happened today. So be, please be praying for Laurie in the midst of all of this. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed for the evening. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Lord, I'm thankful for their desire to understand your word better. And Lord, I pray that some of the things we've talked about tonight would be helpful for them as they study your scriptures, your word to us. And Lord, I pray even as we think about these things, that God, you would remind us even today of how big you are. God, how glorious you are, how mighty you are, how all-powerful you are. And Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that you have a plan, that you do preserve your people. But Lord, you have something so much bigger in store than what we can even imagine. Lord, I pray your blessings over these brothers and sisters as they go throughout the week. Would you give us grace to focus on you. And Lord, when we gather together Sunday morning, I pray we'll be able to do so with hearts just full of joy and gratitude for all you've done this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Y'all have a good night.